Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text Monica to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. For over 10 years, Grammarly has been powered by AI technology that you trust and rely on by helping you across all the places where you write the most. With one click, you can easily brainstorm, rewrite, and reply quickly with suggestions based on your context and goals. Accelerate productivity for you and your teams. More than 30 million people rely on Grammarly to help them with their writing today. Applying to new jobs? With Grammarly by your side, you can apply to your dream job with confidence by tailoring your cover letter and revising your resume in seconds. A big presentation coming up? Let Grammarly create a personalized outline to get you organized so you can transform your ideas into a compelling presentation. For your next vacation, it can help you create a whole itinerary. Grammarly is here to assist you at every step of your writing, so you can show up with confidence. You'll be amazed at what you can do. Go to Grammarly.com go to download for free. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot go. Hi, guys. I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Tuesday as we start a brand new week. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley 
Also by email, I am at monicacrowleypodcast at gmail.com. I know we haven't read uh, some of your emails on the air in quite a while just because we've had so much coming at us, but don't think I don't read them because I do. I read all of your emails and I so appreciate you guys listening and letting me know what is on your mind, so keep them coming. Podcast at gmail.com. Okay, coming up on future shows here. On Thursday, uh, it will be the day after the Republican debate. I do want to deal with that a little bit here today. But on Thursday, we're going to unpack what happened in the GOP debate, as well as President Trump's counter-programming uh, with Tucker Carlson, which will air at the exact same time on a Wednesday night, tomorrow night. So we're going to deal with uh, the debate a little bit here today, and then on Thursday, we're going to take it all apart and President Trump's uh, contribution with Tucker Carlson. We will unpack all of that and talk about where we are in the GOP race. Um, so that is coming up here on Thursday. Future shows, we're going to talk to Ali London about transmania. Ali London, very famous British K-pop star, uh, went through the transition process, had an epiphany, realized that it was fundamentally evil, certainly not for him, and he has detransitioned, and man, does he have a story to tell. And he gets right to the crux of the evil of what we are facing in this entire cultural Marxist assault on our children, um, but across the board, culturally as well. So he will be here. You are not going to want to miss this. It is a blockbuster conversation we're going to have with him. That is coming up. Also coming up here in the days and weeks ahead on the Monica Crowley podcast, the great Matt Gates will join us. We're also going to be joined by Kevin and Sam Sorbo. That's coming up. Love them. They're great friends. Can't wait to talk to them. Larry Elder, who just qualified for the GOP debate tomorrow. He is going to join us coming up. The great Jesse Kelly with his new book on American communism, which we've been talking about forever here on this show. I've been talking about it for, what, 20 years? Uh, Jesse Kelly has written a fantastic new book about it. Jesse Kelly's going to be here. We've got a big actor coming up on this show as well. So heading into the Monica Crowley podcast in the days and weeks ahead uh, after Labor Day. Also, I've got a big announcement coming up after Labor Day, a big one, (laughs) really, really fantastic. You're not going to want to miss that either. So all of that on the big Monica Crowley podcast. All right, so today I mentioned we're going to talk a little bit about the GOP debate coming up tomorrow. I also want to deal with the Hawaii fires and the joke, the demented, corrupt hack of a joke that we have for president uh, right now. Also, the ongoing invasion at the southern border. All of that is coming up later today on this show, plus a very important conversation with the former U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. Ambassador Lighthizer is going to join us here today. He's got a new book out on trade. If you want to know what is going on with China, but also trade in general and all of the big accomplishments under Trump and what we need to do in the future to take on China and the EU and, frankly, the rest of the world who is just eating our lunch on trade and putting all of us the American people, American workers on the back heel. This interview is for you. 
You need to be educated on the issue of trade because it directly affects the lives of you, your children, your families, your communities, and our country. That is a big, important conversation coming straight up today. But first, the Monica Memo. Remember Sally Yates? Sally Yates was the Deputy Attorney General under Eric Holder and under Barack Obama. Sally Yates was in that January 5th, 2017 Oval Office meeting with Obama, Biden, Comey, Brennan, Rice, and others when Obama approved the Hillary Clinton-designed Russia hoax to be taken to the next level to ramp it up and attack the incoming president, Donald Trump, with it to plunge his presidency into crisis with a flat-out lie that he was some sort of Russian agent. When, of course, there were actual Democrats like Joe Biden who were actually selling out the country at the time. Accused Donald Trump of what they themselves were doing at the time. This is what they did. This is what they continue to do. And Sally Yates was a critical part of it. She very smartly flew under the radar, so she didn't get much attention. Sort of like the current number two at DOJ, her name is Lisa Monaco. Lisa Monaco was the Assistant Attorney General for National Security in the Obama administration, who is now back as the Deputy Attorney General, the position that Sally Yates once held. They were tight as ticks in the Obama years at the DOJ. Merrick Garland, the most corrupt, radical, political Attorney General we have ever had, is her boss. But many people think that Lisa Monaco is the one who is actually running the show over there. Remember, she is an Obama loyalist. And Obama is running the show. This is Obama's third term. So therefore, Lisa Monaco, Obama's player at DOJ, is the one driving the bus against Donald Trump, against the January 6th defendants, against parents who speak out at school board meetings, against Catholics, against anybody engaged in wrong think, anybody who goes up against the Obama-Biden regime, the system. They will be sought out, they will be prosecuted, their lives will be destroyed, they will be bankrupted, and in some cases, their freedom will be taken away. That is the power of the DOJ and the FBI. And sitting atop all of it is, yes, Joe Biden, and yes, Kamala Harris, and yes, Merrick Garland, but Lisa Monaco is the one actually carrying out the day-to-day assault, the prosecutions and the persecutions of us deplorables. Getting back to her predecessor in the number two job at DOJ, Sally Yates. Yates is in the Oval Office with Obama, Biden, Comey, Brennan, and Rice, and others on January 5th, 2017, as Obama decided to send the Russia hoax up into next gear to destroy Trump and his presidency. That's Sally Yates. Well, now, where is Sally Yates now, you might ask? What is she doing now, you might ask? Well, funny you should ask, 
It turns out that Sally Yates went back to Atlanta, Georgia, and rejoined her old law firm called King and Spalding, where her practice there focuses on, are you ready for this? Investigations. Sally Yates focuses on investigations at her law firm. Now, just remember, and this is something that we all learned together as the Russia hoax got exposed, that the Democrats use law firms to launder fake intelligence, to launder money. Remember, Hillary Clinton used that big law firm in Washington to launder her money as she paid for the fake steel dossier, as she paid for Fusion GPS to plant these lies all around with the press and to press the whole lie of the Russia hoax. They launder it through leftist law firms. And the reason they do that is because of client attorney privilege. Law firms, if you go through a law firm, they don't have to disclose anything because they're being paid by a client. So it's all kept secret. This is what they do. So Sally Yates now went back to her old law firm in Atlanta, King and Spaulding, and her focus there is investigations. Huh. Are there any investigations going on right now in Atlanta, say in Fulton County? Any say involving a former president? Any say that would have the former president uh, turning himself in for yet another arrest on Thursday this week? Anything like that going on in her jurisdiction? Is Sally Yates involved with her law firm on taking Trump down with these lawsuits and this investigation? Is she working hand in glove with the Soros DA, Fannie Willis? Is she involved at all in any of this? Because if the answer is yes, that means Obama is. And not just Barack, but Michelle, who could be running for president, who knows? And the entire Obama machine. Now, maybe Sally Yates is just doing routine legal work. I don't know. Or maybe she's in deep with the Soros DA to prosecute Donald Trump and with the Obama machine and with the Biden DOJ and Lisa Monaco and the entire Obama team that's still at DOJ. After all, Donald Trump did fire Sally Yates for insubordination. Remember that? When she would not enforce his executive order on restricting immigration from Muslim-majority countries. She said no, she wasn't going to enforce it, so he fired her on the spot. This was like a couple of days into the administration. Very early on, he fired her, which is what she wanted. She stayed, and, you know, it's uh, the beginning of any administration is chaos, and you can't fill all positions right away or get Senate-confirmed positions in there. So she was staying on for a little bit. He did the executive order on the Muslim-majority countries' immigration from those places, and she would not enforce it, so he fired her on the spot for insubordination, which was exactly right. But I think she didn't do it because she wanted to be fired. She wanted to be turned into a martyr. Sally Yates was in on the plot to destroy him with the Russia hoax, and he fired her. So you could say Sally Yates has an axe to grind What is she doing in Atlanta? I'd like to know. Wouldn't you like to know? Mm -hmm. 
we are going to be all over Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, and the Obama team as we go forward here exposing things like this, because Obama, all roads lead to Obama. And we have been talking about this for quite a while now, but now it gets added importance. Yes, this is Obama's third term, but they are also now looking into getting a fourth and a fifth term and maybe even beyond to keep prosecuting the Great Reset here at home. Last week, we had an unbelievable conversation with the great Mel Kay. If you have not heard it yet, go back and listen. It was last Thursday's show about the globalists. And here on this show, we do deal a lot with the globalists because this is a very dark, nefarious, dangerous agenda related to digital IDs, central bank digital currencies, social credit scores, a CCP-style surveillance system here in America. We talk about this. We've talked to James Melville out of the UK about it. Go listen to those conversations, okay? Because the globalist tyrants are on the march. And they are directly linked to the day-to-day assault that we face here in America from the Marxists. It's all of a piece, guys. So while we focus on the communists here at home destroying our country, it's linked to something much bigger, which is this globalist agenda to destroy American freedom and, frankly, to destroy Western freedom on the march to a one-world government in a global surveillance state. So again, it's all of a piece, but we need to break apart who is leading the charge here. And that is Obama. All of the roads lead to him and Michelle and their machine. And the reason it has added uh, importance is because if they ditch Biden and Kamala, which they very well could be, I know the calendar is getting tight here, but they could very well do that. And if they do that, and they put up Michelle Obama, we got to be prepared. And that's why we need to expose all of this stuff, which is ongoing right now at the hands of the Obamas to expose her as well as him. That is the point. So Sally Yates, a critical part of this, I'd really love to know what she is doing in Georgia. All right. Um, Tomorrow night, we've got the Republican debate, which is going to be aired on Fox News. President Trump will be doing some counter-programming by sitting down with Tucker Carlson. That will air at the exact same time on Twitter. So we've got a big night all around tomorrow night. We're going to be all over it here on Thursday. What will the other Republicans do? You know, will they play it safe? Uh, Will they blast Trump? You know, Chris Christie is going to do that. Ron DeSantis probably will as well. Will some of them, like Vivek Ramaswamy, defend Donald Trump? How will DeSantis, Christie, the other GOP candidates, try to score debate points? It, It will be interesting. But all of it will revolve around the one guy who won't be there, Donald Trump. Trump is leading by so much. He's so dominant. Every poll, 30, 40, 50 points ahead of his nearest competitor, who is now Vivek Ramaswamy, not Governor DeSantis. So if these polls are to be believed, and again, who knows? So if these polls are to be believed, there is no horse race. Trump is it, and the primary is over. Now, a million things could happen. Again, the first votes won't be cast for several months. 
Um, and, you know, with these legal challenges and also, you know, there are all kinds of things that could mix this race up. But as of right now, the others are simply auditioning for vice president or for a contributorship on Fox or CNN or someplace else. There's no more drama to come, at least, you know, in the immediate days ahead. So for now, Trump is it. And the rest of it is just sort of noise and jockeying for number two or to try to put on a display for either network executives or Donald Trump. But we're going to be all over the drama tomorrow night. Um, and we'll be all, all over it here on this show on Thursday. Also on Thursday, Trump is turning himself in uh, to Fannie Willis, to the authorities in Atlanta, Fulton County. Maybe Sally Yates will be there. Um, so we will be all over that on Thursday as well. I also want to take a couple of minutes here and talk about two other things. Um, and there's so much coming at us every day. And I, you know, I try to pick and choose what we're going to talk about. It's all important, uh, but we have limited time here. What has gone on in the state of Hawaii is beyond comprehension. Hawaii is a one-party state. It is completely run by the Democrats. There is a Democrat governor, two Democrat senators, and Democrats are pretty much across the board, all the way down to the local level in Hawaii. So we have these massive fires that have taken out entire communities. And as I'm uh, doing the show today, 114 people have been burned to death Confirmed dead, burned to death, 114. We also have over a thousand people still missing, including countless children. So right now, you know, in the western part of Maui, it's the historic district called Lahaina. 114 people have been confirmed dead, over a thousand missing, countless children. Um, 27 bodies have been identified. 11 families have been notified of the deaths of their loved ones. But we don't know how many other people will be confirmed dead, probably hundreds more. So this is a catastrophe of epic proportions. This is a tragedy beyond belief. And the incompetence and the disgusting nature of how the Democrats in Hawaii have handled this, this should be page one story. This should be all over the press. Can you imagine if this had happened under a Republican president? Remember how President Bush, 43, was absolutely crucified uh, after Katrina, where you had people drowning to death. You had people hanging out on the roofs of their homes, and the president was painted as being out of touch, even though he wasn't. He flew over uh, Katrina and the flooding to get a good look at what was happening there. He didn't want to interrupt first responders and other emergency crew on the ground, so he flew over, crucified. That was one of the big things that destroyed his presidency, because the press was all over it. Oh, he's unfeeling. He's out of touch. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about black people. Remember Kanye West at the time? All of it, they turned it into a racial thing. They, they pounded Bush to no end to create that narrative. Here you've got a Democrat hack of a president, completely corrupt, who has now been on three vacations 
a 14-day retreat to the Delaware Beach. Then he did four days at the White House. Then he went back to the beach for vacation number two. Now he is currently on vacation number three in Lake Tahoe, staying at the home of the leftist billionaire Tom Steyer. And then he just decided to do this little kind of side trip to Maui to take a look. The only reason is because he started to get pounded. That's the only reason why he went to Maui. And then while he was there, he was joking about how hot the ground was. And then he made it all about himself. And he started in with this lie about how, oh, his own house almost burnt to the ground back in the day. He almost lost his 67 Corvette and his cat and his wife. It was a little kitchen fire. So not only did he make this catastrophe, this human tragedy into a story all about him, but he did it with a major lie. He is a despicable ghoul. On top of that, Lahaina residents in Hawaii have now filed a class action lawsuit against a utility company alleging that in the days before the fires broke out, that company chose not to de-energize their power lines during the high wind watch and red flag warning conditions for Maui, again, before the fire started. That could have contained, if not prevented, these fires, and the utility company chose not to de-energize their power lines, meaning they were going at full blast, even in the face of all of these warnings. The class action lawsuit also claims that the company failed to shut off those power lines even after the fires began. So human incompetence, or was all of this deliberate? I would hate to think so, but who knows? Also, the state's outdoor emergency warning system, meant to alert residents to tsunamis and other natural disasters, did not go off during the fires. What is the point of having an alert system if it doesn't go off? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Human incompetence, not staying on top of keeping these things up to date and working and tested. Or again, deliberate. I don't know. I'd hate to think so, but who knows? And perhaps the worst fact of all of this tragedy is that a Hawaiian company says that its efforts to divert water to fight the fire, those efforts were delayed for over five hours while a government agency led by a leftist who has pushed for water equity, whatever the heck that is, consulted with local farmers on water equity while these fires were raging and people were being burned to death in their cars. Communism kills. Communism has killed hundreds of millions dead over the last century plus, and it is still killing. What is water equity if not communism? Okay, we have to start calling this exactly what it is. Communism. Communism kills. Communism is a death cult. From abortion to equity to overt violence, communism kills. All right, guys, let's hit a quick break. When we come back, one of the most important conversations you will hear for yourself, your family, your community, and your country about trade with the great ambassador, Bob Lighthizer, who was Trump's U.S. trade representative. Guys, I saw him in the room dealing with the Chinese Communist Party leadership. 
I saw him negotiating with the Chinese. I saw him negotiating with the Mexicans and the Canadians. This man is superb. He's brilliant on trade. He's been doing this a long time. He's a true patriot. He's fighting every day out there for us on trade. You're going to want to hear this because this has a direct impact on your wallet, your family budget, your job, your community. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. For over 10 years, Grammarly has been powered by AI technology that you trust. With one click, you and your team can easily brainstorm, rewrite, and reply with personalized suggestions. You'll be amazed at what you can do. Go to Grammarly.com slash go to download for free. And your future. So Bob Lighthizer on the other side. Sit tight. Well, it's an absolute honor and pleasure to have with us today a true American patriot who is also the most brilliant thinker, voice, and leader on trade in the country today. Robert Lighthizer served as U.S. Trade Representative under President Trump and led the negotiations which led to fair, more reciprocal trade deals between the United States and China, which very few people, apart from President Trump and Bob Lighthizer, thought could actually get done, and they did it. Also, bilateral trade deals with the United States and Japan and the U.S. and South Korea among others. He also led the negotiations that led to the total revamping of NAFTA, the new trade deal with Canada and Mexico called the USMCA, which was a huge achievement. He's been fighting for fair trade deals on steel, cars, agricultural products, tech, and so much more his entire life. And as trade representative, plus Deputy Trade Representative in the Reagan administration, 
and as a lawyer specializing in international trade law. So he really knows his stuff. He's got a brand new book out, which is one of the most important things that you will read. It's called No Trade is Free, Changing Course, Taking on China and Helping America's Workers. It's available now wherever you get your books, so please go get it. Ambassador Lighthizer joins us now. Bob, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me, Monica, and thank you for all your great work in the administration. It was a, it was always a sunny day when I was in a meeting with you. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Uh, well, that is very kind of you to say, and I have to say, it was always such a joy to watch you working. And we were actually we were in China together uh, right before the virus <laughs> started to spread. We were in Shanghai uh, wrapping up that phase one uh, China deal. You and Secretary Mnuchin taking the lead on that. You did extraordinary work. And I was just so proud to be by your side and, and support you in those efforts. You really um, have achieved so much on the part of America's workers in the United States. And it was an honor honor, again, to be in the foxhole with you. Also, Bob, congratulations on this new book. Well done. So we've got so much to cover with you, uh, including what you cover in the book. But before we get into trade policy, let's talk a little bit about you, because you have spent your entire career on international trade issues, and you have been devoted to fighting for America's workers. How did you get involved in in, in trade as a career path? Was there a moment or an event that got your attention years ago that sparked your interest? Well, you know, that's a great question, Monica. I, you know, I, and I, and I have had it before and I've spent time thinking about it. I, I would say, first of all, um, you know, I came from one of those places where this modern trade policy left behind, where the, from Mattville, Ohio, a small town that was uh, agriculture, but manufacturing, small manufacturing, and a prosperous place when I was a young person. And then over a period of years, all of that changed, right? We had a bad policy. People accepted it, and, and, and we lost the automobile industry that supported a lot of people there. We lost the steel industry that reported a lot of people there. And uh, so I, in many ways, my community and my experience – we're sort of victims of, of this bad trade policy. But, and, and so that sort of set the tone, but, but like so many other things in life, it was probably, you know, serendipity as much as anything else. I, I've been practicing law at a major firm doing an antitrust, uh, which is kind of related a little bit. Um, and then I got a chance to go work on the Hill for Senator Robert Dole and ultimately be the staff director of, of the Senate Finance Committee, which was a great thrill, and I'm a huge fan of his. And one of the early major bills that we did um, was a, a bill called the Tokyo Round Negotiation. It was implementing a trade negotiation. And it was one of those things that only comes along every several years. So, so that would have been 79. The next time we had one was in the Clinton administration. Uh, and the previous time had been uh, decades before. So it was one of those rare things. And it kind of sparked my interest in trade and trade policy. And being um, a natural contrarian, I was kind of critical of things that I thought were probably not going to ultimately help American workers, like the people you know whose, whose parents I grew up with. 
And uh, and so I was a little skeptical about that, although that was not a bad bill. Then by the time you got to the future ones, they got very bad. And and because of that experience, uh, Bill Brock, who was USTR and Reagan, asked me to be deputy. And and at that point, now I'd spent a fair amount of time on this stuff and really found that I I was intrigued by it. First of all, it had a real impact on real people. It wasn't like doing corporate law or banking law, which is um, you know, you can make money at, but doesn't really help people. I completely identified with the working people. Uh, you know, my view always was that, um, that, you know, that we should have programs for the poor and the rich will take care of themselves, forget about them. But you have to have, you have to design your policy around helping the great middle class working people in America. And that was, that was, you know, that's where I came from. And that's, I always wanted to help those people. And, and I guess another kind of a strain in this is there's always been kind of a, a split in the Republican Party between the kind of northeastern elite, know-it-all, you know, I would say Rockefeller types, and then the kind of Taft, Bob Dole types, which are sort of semi-populist, working people, small business, uh, you know, Main Street and small town kind of Republicans. And in that split, you can imagine I was I was on the side of the small towns, both because I worked for Dole and because of my own experience. So there was kind of a confluence of a lot of things. And then I, I was very fortunate to be picked by Ronald Reagan to be a deputy. And 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 I and then I enjoyed the work so much and the fact that it actually helped people that I continued to throughout my entire career. You know, it's it's incredible because you're you're exactly right. Trade really does directly affect individuals, families, communities, and then of of course the country writ large. But it's such an important point that the issue set that you were working on your entire life has had the ability, and you've had a direct hand in improving their lives. Farmers, steel workers, uh, entire communities have benefited from your life's work, Bob, and that is that is a, a huge, huge achievement, and we're all so grateful to you. I want to talk about trade policy by starting with the 800-pound gorilla, which is, of course, China. And I want to share a story with you, Bob, that I think you'll appreciate. I don't think I've told you this before. But as you know, I worked with former President Richard Nixon during his last years. President Nixon, of course, opened uh, relations with China in 1972, primarily as a geostrategic move to use China as a counterweight against growing Soviet power at the time. Because he felt, and I wrote my entire PhD dissertation on this subject, but his range of policy choice and movement at the time was severely restricted because of the war in Vietnam. So Nixon chose a creative policy path to contain the Soviets while we were distracted and our resources were being drained in Vietnam. That involved enlisting China as a strategic counterweight and keeping the Russians and the Chinese apart in order to have the United States buy some time and until we could bring the Vietnam War to an end. I accompanied President Nixon on what would be his last trip to China in 1993, and this was just four years after the massacre in Tiananmen Square. Bob, there were only two people on the planet at the time who could speak frankly to the Chinese communist leadership and have them sit there and take it 
with no pushback or defensiveness. It was Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. That was it. So Nixon arrived in China in 1993 because the Chinese wanted to enlist his support for their membership in the World Trade Organization and because they wanted most favored nation trading status. We had a new president in the White House at the time, Bill Clinton, and the Chinese wanted Nixon to bring those messages back to Clinton, that China should have both trading privileges. So they made this case to President Nixon, and Nixon looked at them, Bob, and he said, if you want me to bring these messages back to Washington, you have to stop killing your own people. I share that story with you, Bob, for a couple of reasons. First of all, China did not stop killing its own people to this very day. Second, they did get admitted to the World Trade Organization, and they got most favored nation trading status. And three, they went from a geostrategic partner to our most existential adversary across military, economic, cultural, diplomatic, and intelligence fronts. So from a trade perspective, Bob, how did we get here with China? What mistakes did we make over time that got us to this point where we have this massive trade deficit with China and China's been able to get away with it now for decades? So there's a lot in that. Uh, Let me make a couple of comments. First of all, um, this notion of opening up to China really is the beginning of the problem, right? Now, it was done at that time, and you could say people couldn't see that far down the road. But by bringing China into the mainstream, um, we really were having the effect of, of, and this goes back to the 70s, right? And next thing, we were really having the effect of giving them the opportunity to steal technology and build up their industry and to make themselves rich. And interestingly, in his new book, uh, Dr. Kissinger, his new book is called Leadership, which is an excellent book. In his part about Nixon, he talks at one point, he says, we knew that like any other major strategic success, we were opening, opening the door for more problems down the road. And those more problems are this. So that's one thing that, that kind of sparked when you mentioned that. Another thing I find sort of interesting because of the Nixon to Clinton thing. The first article that I wrote on this subject generally was in 1997. And in that, it was a New York Times article. And in that article, um, I was talking about, you'll recall there was all this uh, so-called Indonesian money, this foreign money that went into the Clinton campaign in 96. Now remember, I'm uh, the treasurer of the Dole campaign. I'm a major player in Dole's campaign and unsuccessful campaign in 96. So so there was this Indonesian money. Remember, there was that big scandal about it after the election. And my article basically said, look, this is not Indonesian money. This is Chinese money. And I kind of chased Grace three out. These were really Chinese characters who were giving this money. And I said, the Chinese are giving money to Clinton uh, in his reelect. What do they want? And I said that this is 97, right? It was three years before. I said they want MFN treatment to get WTO. And I said if they do, no American manufacturing job will be safe. I said all this in 97. Three years later, literally on the way out the door, uh, Clinton, uh, with a bunch of Republicans helping him, by the way, 
all of whom should be shamed, voted to give MFN to, to China, and the rest is history. Our trade deficit with them went from, you know, 40 or 50 billion to 380 billion, and they began this process of integrating into our economy and stealing our our technology. So, so, so now that that's all by way of background. So, what really has happened? China has a policy that really started even in the 80s, but but it really became effective with um, the Clinton years, and then MFN was kind of the culmination. I call it the you know the original sin of trade policy was to give them most favored nation, uh, and and not. Um, at the law before they changed that, they still had good tariffs, but it could, they could be taken away every year. And so we gave certainty to U.S. businesses and to Chinese businesses. They could move to China and sell in the United States. And China had a very clear policy to do two things. One was to steal our technology. So they had forced technology transfer. They didn't protect intellectual property. They had um, and had and still have industrial espionage. They have a whole program where they put students around the United States in these um, uh, physics and chemistry and other hard sciences. They, they have a whole, a whole uh, intelligence apparatus, a whole industrial apparatus, a diplomatic apparatus, all designed to one, get manufacturing jobs in China from the United States. What happened was we ended up with this giant transfer of wealth from the United States and technology. And if you think about it, over the 20 years up to like a year or so ago, we transferred $6 trillion of the wealth of American people and our children and our grandchildren to the communist Chinese. If you add on top of that, the amount of technology that they have stolen from us which we estimate to be worth about $300 billion a year, that's another several trillion dollars in value that they have taken from us. And then, and then there's a compounding effect, right? Because if you, if you t take technology one year, 10 years later, it's worth more. So I, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of this Chinese economic miracle really was the result of a economic war that they waged on the United States. And I would say with the compliance of many Americans, right, bankers and others who invested there and got rich. So that that's the, the long and the short story. And millions of Americans lost their job. There, there, there was, you know, wages became stagnant. And it was, it was, uh, it, and it, it, it really was also us, paying for the buildup of their military. Yes. So now they have the biggest army in the world, the biggest navy in the world, all of which is the result of our transfer of wealth to them. You know, never in the history of the world has one country funded the rise of its premier enemy, and yet here we are. Um, and all of this, everything that you've laid out so brilliantly, Bob, it, it was all the basis of globalism, right? And and the building block of globalism was the assumption that economic integration 
with not just China, but any current adversaries, potential adversaries, that economic integration would largely mitigate conflict. And it was built on this academic theory that democracies tend not to fight one another. Um, Also, if you liberalize uh, economies, that that will bring then the demand for political liberalization, and then therefore the world will have less conflict. It was all based on this assumption, which sounded very good. And frankly, I bought into it for a very long time. I learned about it when I was in college and graduate school, learned about it. Everybody bought into it, including President Nixon, including Presidents Clinton and the Bushes and so on. Everybody uh, was operating on this assumption. And what we now know is that was a false assumption. Or at the very least, the Chinese were also onto that assumption and turned it around. They inverted it to their advantage. And now here we are. So this whole unfair trading system was probably going to go on forever until President Trump was elected. And he held a very firm view that China should be dealt with aggressively, as you did, as you believed for a very long time, um, and particularly with regard to trade. But in order to get China to change its behavior, you had to get its attention first and let them know that we were serious. Talk to us about tariffs. Because as you say, there was a long time split in the GOP and and guys like our good friend Larry Kudlow and others believed in free trade, did not believe in tariffs. They have all come along because they've seen it work. But talk to us about tariffs. Explain, first of all, for the audience what they are and then how you use them effectively against Chinese goods. I, I will do that. Let me Let me begin by just sort of endorsing what you said before. This this hubris of the 1990s that somehow by transferring your wealth to China and other countries, they were all going to become like Switzerland was, it, it was very much an elitist kind of a view. And the, 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 the effect of it was that millions of Americans lost their job. The middle-class people lost fell out of the middle class. And we had blights in, 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 in cities across the country. We had, that you know, raising in deaths of despair by by because of opioids and other things that come out of the fact that these people were losing their jobs, and it was all this absolutely insane notion that 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 you know that the, the end of history was the idea. Right. right. This is yes. now, we're now on this glide path to 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 sort of uh, to to making everyone a bunch of uh, you know Switzerland's, and of course the only thing it ignored. I would say two things. One, there was no precedent report ever happening in history, and two, it ignored human nature. Now, having said that, uh, let's go back to what your question was. One, uh, the, it strikes me as very, very unlikely that we are ever going to get China to change its policies, right? The, the notion that we're going to get China to change, which a lot of people still have, I think is a fatally wrong mistake. China has been the way China is for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. And they certainly have been the way they are as communists from the very beginning of Mao. Deng Xiaoping and these other periods, you know, periods, Hu Jintao, they were not fundamentally different than Xi Jinping right now. They were all basically the same. In some cases, they wanted to hide their power and bide their time. In other cases, they didn't. But the basic policy was the same. So, so let's talk about tariffs generally. If you want to get trade deficits down, there are kind of three ways, and and trade deficits are a huge problem, both with China, 
but oh, but but overall for the United States, you know, where we had a over a trillion dollar trade deficit last year, there's kind of three ways you can do it. One way, and then I'll talk about tariffs specifically. One way you can do it is the way that Warren Buffett recommended in in 2003 in an article, and that is to have sort of import and export certificates. And so in order to import, you have to have an export certificate and you create a market and you get balanced trade. Another way is you could put a fee on capital access to the United States, a certain market access fee. And basically when someone buys in, in the United States, they'd have to pay a fee if they were a foreigner. And that gets the value of the currency down and would get the trade deficit down. And then the third way really is tariffs. And tariffs have been a part of of economic policy in the world, you know, for literally forever. The United States government was basically funded almost entirely on tariffs and some excess, excise taxes for, for the first uh, 100 or so years of our existence. <clears throat> and it's a very simple mechanism. A product comes in, you, you apply a, a tariff to it. It raises the, the, the price in some cases. In some cases, it doesn't. There's always this argument of who pays the tariff. We found that when we put tariffs on China, the prices of the products from China didn't go up, right? We didn't have inflation. The notion that consumers in the United States pay the tariffs is sometimes it works out that way, but most of the time it really doesn't work out that way. My proposal and is really something that that uh, President Trump has also proposed in these, these very thoughtful, he has these short videos, which I really recommend to people on various subjects, because he's running really on policy, policy, policy. And he's got two or three of them in the trade area. One of them's on trade deficits. One of them is on China. And, uh, and they're, 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 they're very serious and very important and very accessible. You can listen to them. And what he is proposing is some kind of is, is tariffs that'll get a help us to move more in the direction of balanced trade, really to offset the other disadvantages that the United States has that are that are unfair, one of which is that our currency does not adjust. We're a reserve currency, and we can run huge trade deficits without our currency adjusting to get us back to balance. And the, the ultimate effect on that is on working people. So if you put tariffs in place, you will see more manufacturing come back to the United States. You will see manufacturing of tariffs on China move away from China to the United States and to our friendlier powers. Um, and the effect will be uh, overall a manufacturing boom in the United States. And, and I would say this, this increase in manufacturing that we're seeing right now in many places is a direct result of the tariffs we put in place in the Trump administration. You know, it takes time. You put tariffs in place, companies have to build plants and the like, uh, and those tariffs are having the effect of really creating a lot of the manufacturing increases that are going on right now in the United States. It just takes that amount of time. You know, it takes an auto company five or six years to go from a plan to an actual plant. So we're seeing a certain amount of that also. So, so, to me, tariffs are like anything else. They're, they're, they're neutral. They're an economic tool. They can be good. They can be bad. It depends on how they're used. But we need one to stop the wealth transfer to China. And two, we need to stop these huge global trade deficits. Uh, let me just give you one data point, which is kind of interesting. I'll try not to be too technical, but there's a, 
there's a statistic that's, that's, that, that is called the net international investment position of a country, okay? And it's a very simple concept. How much do all Americans own overseas versus how much do all foreigners own in the United States, okay? And that's a number that was very positive, as you can imagine, for most of American history. And then you look back, Warren Buffett wrote an article on this in, I think, 2003, and at that time, that net international investment position of the United States, how much more foreigners own than we own, was a negative uh, $2 trillion. And he was talking about how bad that was, and it was bad. It's now a negative $17 trillion. Wow. So foreigners own more of America than we own overseas by seventeen. dollars trillion dollars. And that's equities, you know, stocks and the like, it's debt, and it's real estate. And it's direct relationship is this transfer of wealth constantly because of this of uh, these trade deficits. What it, we're doing, another way to think of it is let me just be real quick on this. What another way to think of it is we are transferring the ownership of our country to foreigners, including China, in exchange for current consumption, for T-shirts and television sets and the like. And that is madness as a policy if you care about your grandchildren. It's absolutely staggering. And it's horrifying that we have allowed it to go this far and get us in this position. And this is why I want, another reason I wanted to have you here today, so that people understand the magnitude of what we're dealing with. And again, this did not just happen overnight. This has been the result of our own misguided trade policies for decades. Um, getting back to China here, uh, you know, the, the tariffs did work. It did drive China to the negotiating table. You were able to negotiate the phase one uh, deal. And we had other phases ready to go, two and three. Um, if President Trump had been uh, reelected, if he is reelected, I have no doubt you will be right there uh, by his side, um, pressing forward with regard to China. But are you surprised? Two questions for you. Number one, are you surprised that the Biden administration has largely kept most, if not all, of these tariffs? And two, do you expect that they are, in fact, going to lift at least some of them? So let me answer this. Am I surprised that they kept them? A little bit, maybe. But I think they are so popular that had they dropped them, and they nibbled away, so popular that had they dropped them, it would have been devastating politically for Biden and for the Democrats. If you look at the numbers, it's it's upwards of 80% of the people agree with these tariffs under these circumstances. So, and do I think they will get rid of them? Monica, If I believe that if he's reelected, those tariffs are largely gone in six months. Mm -hmm. That's how strong I feel about it. So why do I say that? Number one, I think he's only keeping him because of the politics. He's got some very good people in this administration, by the way, some smart people who understand, but he is not one of them. Two, he has always been pro-China. Three, you see him minimizing their, their, their aggression towards us. That's, that's a scary thing. And then three, there's this whole question of uh, 
of, of, of the relationship of his family and all that, which, which none of us know the details of. So I would be very surprised if he kept this policy. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I think we are at a point now where we should be moving beyond where we did in the Trump administration. And I think really what President Trump is proposing now is something more akin to strategic decoupling, to increasing tariffs, to changing the relationship on technology so that the United States has a much closer relationship in manufacturing at home and with our allies and, and much less dependence on China. We are dangerously dependent on China. Uh, one of our, the, the CEOs of one of our big defense uh, contractors, you know, you know, literally said, we, you know, we can't move out of China. They're too important. And I'm, and I'm, and my initial thought was, so the United States is hiring your company to build weapons to protect us against China. And you're saying you're dependent on China for, for production of those weapons. It's, it's, it's madness. So we really have to put in place a phased in program over a period of four or five years that says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, Put tariffs in place to get the deficit down. We're going to disentangle on issues of technology, and we're going to severely restrict outgoing investment to China and incoming investment from China. And that last point is really an important point. I mean, the Biden administration, President Biden came out with an executive order to do something in a year or two. It wasn't urgent. It was very narrow in terms of its sectors it protected. Right now, American working families have parts of their retirement invested like through a, a Vanguard International uh, Index Fund, and a, a, a fairly high percentage of that is in China, in companies we don't know anything about. I mean, this is, it's just, it's, it's people, and it's making them richer, and, and they're trying to take us on. I mean, there's just so many things that we have to be doing as part of this strategic decoupling. And I do believe that's going to be the next step. And I hope it's if President Trump is elected, I'm confident it'll be the next step. And if some of the other Republican candidates, I think, would also have a similar policy. Some wouldn't. Otherwise, they're just globalists. But but there are some who, 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 who do seem to understand this threat. And everybody needs to understand here that trade isn't simply an economic issue. It's also a political one. It's a national security issue. It's a human issue as well, because unfair trade hurts American workers, farmers, fishermen, all of the individuals, all of the industries, all of the communities that you have been fighting to protect your entire adult life. So everybody needs to understand trade is not just about, you know, major tankers coming from China and off loading cheap goods in the port of Los Angeles. This has this is a multi-dimensional kind of issue. And I do appreciate, Bob, that you talk about the idea that decoupling from China is in fact possible. Because a lot of people say, hey, you've got the two biggest economies on the face of the earth, the US and China. We are so deeply integrated in so many ways that decoupling from China really isn't possible. And what are you going to do? You're going to move manufacturing to the United States? Well, of course, that's what we want to see. But the labor and production costs are so high here that if we're not producing in China, where are we going to produce? Well, you've got companies now like Apple to their credit, moving 
uh, manufacturing out of China to places like India, where the labor and production costs are still relatively low. But then how do we get out, out of that interim purgatory of moving out of China, but you're in India or the Philippines or Thailand or someplace else that's relatively cheap? How do we get out of that purgatory and get manufacturing full on back to the United States? Well, my stance is, let's think of this in stages. First of all, we don't need all the manufacturing back in the United States, but we need to get back to balanced trade. And I'm not against trade. I think trade is great. In fact, I always, I always say, you know, trade is good, more trade is better, but it has to be fair and balanced, balanced, balanced. I always, you know, it's not just fair trade. We need balanced trade. We can't have this outgo of our national wealth to other countries. But, but, the notion of, of, of balanced trade with places like India, where we send them things, I mean, they're not a threat to the United States. They're a natural ally, given the fact that that, that there's always going to be tension between India and China. So uh, and another place, you know, where some jobs have moved because of things and steps that we took in the Trump administration is to Mexico. I personally have the view that that prosperity in Mexico is in America's interest. Right. The more prosperous Mexico is, the less chaos, the less, you know, drugs, the less all these bad things that are that are, you know, have an impact on the United States. So I think and we have a huge Mexican-American population that benefits from that. So I moving manufacturing to other places is a good thing. I want balanced trade, but I'm not against trade generally. And and the other thing is people talk about this, um, this notion of, well, Wages are lower in other places. You know, is it all just about corporate profits? Is it all about, you know, investment bankers in New York City who, who want to go from, you know, one billion to two billion in, in personal wealth? Is that, you know, is that, isn't that short sighted? And, and how important is that to most Americans, right? So I, you know, I want corporations to make money and do well, but we should be thinking about workers. The workers are the ones that make the families and the families, the communities and the communities of the nation, right? That should be our focus. It shouldn't be, we want to have the cheapest television set and the cheapest t-shirts and the cheapest gym shoes. What difference does it make if your gym shoes cost a little more, if the trade-off is a stronger America? So I, I, I challenge the very notion of these companies. Of course, they owe an obligation to their shareholders to, to, to chase the cheapest everything, get profits up and their own salaries up in many cases. But the purpose of government is to change rules so that American, the American people are served, not just corporate profit efficiency or consumption. Yes, and, you know, we've spent all of this time and we just have another minute or so left, Bob, with you. But we've spent our entire conversation here talking about China because it is the biggest one on the block. Um, but you had tremendous successes in renegotiating NAFTA with Canada and Mexico, the USMCA trade deal. Huge, huge achievement. Plus bilateral trade deals with Japan, South Korea and others that directly benefited America's workers and our economy. And I, you know, I, as somebody who 
who was a spokesperson for Treasury, I used to love putting out this data point that the Trump administration, thanks to the trade deals you and Secretary Mnuchin and uh, Secretary Ross negotiated here, we were able to create 500,000 new manufacturing jobs in the U.S., bringing those, uh, that manufacturing base, or at least beginning to, back to the United States. That was a major, major accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely true. You'll recall those are the jobs that uh, famously President Obama said, those jobs are gone forever. What are you going to bring them back with a magic wand? Right. Remember all? Remember yeah. that kind of sarcastic comment he had? And the reality is you didn't need a magic wand. You just needed sound pro-worker policies. And we had them. And we will have them again. Final question for you, Bob. In order to really take on these unfair trading practices by trading bullies like China, we need strong, courageous leadership like you and President Trump once again. If he is reelected, would you serve again? Goodness gracious. Uh, you know, I, I, I like to think of that, uh, Monica, as a rich man's problem, right? Because that means he's already won. So, and, and I operate on the assumption that rich people don't really have problems. So that's a rich man's problem. But, you know, I would certainly think about it. I, I'm, you know, I, I, I think uh, President Trump will be uh, a spectacular president if he's elected. I think he was the first time. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm a patriot. But it would depend on sort of where I was at that point in my life and how I could help. Well, we absolutely need you. And the entire audience listening knows that we need you. So uh, I look forward to having you back as USTR on behalf of all of the American people. In the meantime, everybody should go get your book right now. It's called No Trade is Free. It's available wherever you get your books. Please go get it and read it. You will be smarter for it, and you'll be armed with everything you need on the trade issue for you, your families, your community, your country. Uh, for the years ahead. Bob, I want to thank you so much for being with us and, and for being such an American patriot and fighting for all of us. Well, thank you very much, Monica. I, I, I enjoyed doing this show. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you and an honor, and I look forward to having you back as we talk about trade into the future. Ambassador Robert Lighthizer, former and hopefully future U.S. Trade Representative. Again, the book is called No Trade is Free. Wow, what a conversation, right, guys? What an entire show to kick off the week here. Um, I know I mentioned we were going to talk about the southern border and the invasion that is ongoing there, along with Biden's absolutely despicable choice to sell off the border wall. We don't have time for that today. We are going to get to it. We'll probably get to that on Thursday, because you know that the Republicans are going to talk about the border and illegal and illegal immigration tomorrow night at the debate. So we will cover this on Thursday, along with uh, the debate. We'll take all of that apart, plus President Trump with Tucker Carlson tomorrow night as well. All right, so that's Thursday, and we got big shows lined up. And we've got more big shows coming at you in the days and weeks ahead. Thank you so much for joining me and for checking out our great sponsors. We all appreciate that. Um, have a great balance of your week, and I will see you right back here on Thursday. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. 
offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.